0: I think that's really critical and that's how you basically get your structure working, making sure that there were times in this edit that I realised that the reader knew too much. I told them too much too early and I needed to pull back on some of those things and delay those things. So asking yourself those questions. If you just broadly look at a book in three acts, act like one to three. What do they know at the end of act one and what do they still need to know? What do they know at the end of act two and what do they still not know? And again, by the end of act three, obviously you want to pretty much know everything, but how do you then just drip that through? That's so crucial to my writing process.
1: Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new year, a brand new season of Rights for Women for 2023. Fabulous to be back, back in your ears and hopefully back in your screens if you're watching on YouTube or via the Rights for Women website. I hope that you have all had a brilliant Christmas, although it seems just so long ago now. Like the other day, I was thinking and I thought, is it really still January? It seems like so long since Christmas And I hope you had a great start to 2023. I have a fabulous episode for you today, which we're kicking off with a craft of writing episode featuring fabulous Natasha Lester talking about creating tension on the page In her most recent release, The Three Lives of Alex St-Pierre, I'm really looking forward to bringing this to you. I had a great chat with Natasha about all this at the end of last year, and we're going to get onto that very soon. But I thought I'd fill you in, first of all, on a little bit of a personal update on my writing, what's happening, and also on what's coming up at Writes for Women over the next few months and in the course of 2023, because there's a lot happening. So, first of all, a little bit of a personal writing update. January, for me, has been all about writing a novella. This is part of an anthology that is going to be published in October. It's a Christmas anthology being brought out by HQ, HarperCollins, and it's called A Country Practice Christmas, and it's five authors who are, have all written vets of some kind or other in their past books in in some way. And it was the brainchild of the fabulous Penelope Janu, a great friend of mine and writing buddy at the Inkwell and who has an amazing new release, Shelter from the Storm. So shout out to Pen on the new release. And also a massive thank you for coming up with this idea of the novella. Now, I have never written a novella before, So this has been a virginal experience for me. And I'm in the anthology alongside Penn, of course. Also Alyssa Callan, who writes small-town rural stories. Stella Quinn, another ace rural author. And Lily Malone, who has written some fabulous rural stories and is back with this novella. It's a real treat to be able to work with these amazing women writers And to actually do something new and fresh, because I am also writing the second instalment in the Blackwater Lake series called Out of the Ashes, although I have put that on hold for the time being to get the novella out of the way. But I decided to set the novella in the same world, if you like, or the same town, actually, as Blackwater Lake and Out of the Ashes. And the third book, which will be coming up next year, And uh, it's just been a really great experience to just dive back into the same vicinity. Of course, the main character in the novella is vet. It's a new character, Darcy Horton. And it's just been wonderful to actually immerse myself in this world again. I have been furiously writing. Luckily for me, I'm good with a deadline because there were quite a few interruptions along the way to this novella with the wedding in November and of my daughter just gone and a whole lot of other things, including the whole family coming down with COVID starting on Christmas Day. So that was a real treat. Thanks, COVID. But thankfully, that is all out of the way now. We're all healthy and back on deck. And as I say, writing furiously. So The next week with a January 31 deadline for me is going to be all about revision, getting through those scenes again, revising them, doing everything I can to get it up to scratch to send it off to the publisher. So that's really what I've been working on. I am also putting together my Turn Up the Tension course, which starts on the 1st of March. Now, if you're a writer, and I'm sure that many of you listening are writers, and I know there's some readers out there who are listening too, so shout out to all of you. But if you're a writer and you're interested in getting more, I guess, engagement from the reader, making your story more of a page turner, and it doesn't have to be a thriller or a crime novel or anything in that genre, what we all want is for our readers to just want to turn that next page, to get to the end of the story and just be completely immersed in the book. So Turn Up the Tension is a course that I have taught numerous times now. It's a workshop that I've taught through Writing New South Wales at the RWA conference, and I've done it online and in person. And it's always been received so well that I've decided to really put a whole lot more information into it, really bump it up, turn up the tension in the course, if you like. And it's going to be an eight-week online course starting from the 1st of March, And it will include eight modules covering things like grabbing the reader with a fantastic hook right from the beginning, looking at character, looking at plot, structure, pacing, looking at the words on the page, looking at a secret ingredient called microtension, drawing on the work of Donald Mass and other writers, and also using loads of examples from current books, from maybe a few from a few classics as well. And each participant in the course will be asked to choose a book from their own genre or a book that has really hooked them to use as a model text and to be able to analyse various scenes from that, as well as write their own scenes, have a look at the scenes from other people in the course. We'll also be having a weekly Zoom call where we can discuss all these things. I'll be giving feedback on small amounts of participant writing. And then at the end of the course, there will be the opportunity for further feedback should you wish to continue on with that. So, I'm really excited about the potential for this course. The information for the course you will find at pamelacook.com.au on my website. And there are limited placings because this is the first time I'm running the course. I'm limiting the placings to 12 people. I have an early bird discount happening at the moment of $150 off for anybody who signs up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, it would be great to have some Rights for Women listeners on board. And if you are interested, just drop me an email at pamela at pamelacook.com.au or check out the information on my website and contact me via there. So hope to see some of you enrolling in that course and really getting into the turning up the tension in your own writing. I also wanted to tell you about the upcoming episodes of Rights for Women. I've had a little bit of a break over the holidays, just needed to rest and recharge and regroup around the podcast and what was going to happen with that. If you follow Rights for Women on social media, you'll notice that I've changed the logo a little bit, still got the same graphic, but I've changed the colour and into a nice sage green on the background and I'm blending that in a little bit more with my own brand colours of kind of greens and greys and rusts and those gum tree colours that I love so much. It's all just to bring everything online and to pull it all together as part of my own branding, of course, as Pamela Cook. and. As the podcaster on Rights for Women. So that is one change. Another change that is happening, and this started last year, was the introduction of guest hosts. And that, of course, anybody who is a regular listener will know that I've already had quite a lot of guest hosts happening, but that is now being more formalized, I guess, as we go into 2023. I'm going to be doing two episodes a month. It won't be strictly two, but it might be two one month, three the next, one the next. But I'm trying to make sure that I do get two episodes of month of my own onto the podcast and added onto that will be episodes from guest hosts. So coming up, I've also done a fantastic interview, a new release author feature with Lisa Island. And Lisa is just an absolute Gem. And her new book, The One and Only Dolly Jamison is just a treat to read. Really wonderful. So I highly recommend everybody get a copy of that. And that episode will be coming out next. Following very shortly on from that, I have an interview with Terry Green. Now, Terry is an author of The Inkwell. And Terry is like myself, one of the founding members of the original writing group, which was The Writers Dozen. So Terry and I have been writing together since about 2004, so almost 20 years, which we go back a long way. And Terry, over the course of the last six months, has produced two fantastic historical fiction novels featuring Feisty Female Swordfighter set back in the 1600s. So I'm going to be talking to Terry about a whole lot of things, of course, about her new books, but also about longevity in writing and being in it for the long haul and making writing just an integral part of your life. So look out for that episode coming up in the next few weeks. I also have Meredith Jaffe, who will be chatting to Kylie Ladd about her new book. Mary Lou Stevens, who is doing a heart of writing, really, episode with a new release author, Joe Dixon. The House of Now and Then is her new release and it's getting rave reviews. So can't wait to get, bring that one out. And I've also got a fabulous fantasy episode with guest host Joe Riccioni talking to two other fantasy writers, Nina Kenwood and Meg Gatland, about their books and about writing fantasy and creating worlds and a whole lot of other fantastic stuff, which will be relevant to anybody who is writing. You don't have to be a fantasy writer to find that interesting. And I know that you will because I've already listened to some of that ep and it's great. So there's heaps coming up on Rights for Women. Other interviews I've got coming up are with Joanna Nell talking to Fiona Robertson about short story writing. Rachel Johns will be coming back as a guest host. Maya Linnell, Cassie Hamer, Hans is going to be interviewing some crime writers. There's just going to be a whole heap of fantastic women writers bringing their own experience, their own interpretation and bringing perhaps a different perspective to some of the interviews too. But I will still be here and, as I said, doing a couple of interviews a month and Rights for Women will still be coming out every week. And if you are listening and you enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you could give a rating or a review wherever you listen. Another great way that to get the word out about Rights for Women would be to share some of the social media posts, whether that's on your feed or in your stories, Tell your writer and reader friends about the podcast and uh, I would just really dearly love for you to get the word out there and so we can increase the listenership of Rights for Women over 2023. So on to this week's guest. Natasha Lester really needs no introduction. She's been a guest on the podcast numerous times now and Natasha is a friend of mine, but I also love having her back on the podcast because she always has so much to offer on the whole writing craft aspect on the business of writing, anything to do with writing and publishing. And of course, Natasha's most recent book, The Three Lives of Alex St-Pierre, is an amazing page turner itself and just a really great war and post-war setting in France. And it has a real sort of noir feel about it. And there is just tension dripping from the pages of that book. So I really wanted to talk to Natasha about how she went about getting tension into her writing. And bring that to your ears and to your screens as the first episode for Rights for Women for 2023. Sit back, grab a cuppa, and I really hope that you enjoy this episode with Natasha Lester. You're all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Natasha Lester, welcome back to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you for
0: having me, Pam. It's always fun chatting to you. So I feel like I'm back in Sydney and we're doing one of our catch-ups at Felix.
1: The place. Fantastic. I wish we were. I know. <laughs> so I really wanted to talk to you, as you know, about the tension conflict in The Three Lies of Alex St. Pierre, which is your latest fabulous novel. But before we get on to that, can you tell us a little bit about because you've now finished all the publicity for the for that book tour, and can you fill us in a little bit on what's been happening with all that? Yeah, so it's been really fun. I was
0: invited to go to Sweden, in fact, initially by my Swedish publisher for this massive book fair called Bookmässen, which happens every year. It's like Frankfurt plus a writers' festival combined, so you've got the trade book fair happening, the reader book fair happening, all in this one massive um, exhibition centre. And I was asked to go there and do three sessions talking about Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, in fact, because that just came out in Sweden. And it was the most amazing experience I've ever had in my life as a writer. There was, I've never been in a place, if I went there, with so many people. <laughs> and it was just incredible. It was so it was like sensual overload, so many people and so many. Readers who put noise and craziness and it was just super fun. And then after I did that, then my Norwegian publisher had me up to Norway to meet some booksellers and meet some readers and do lots of book signings and do some filming and publicity stuff. And while I was there, the Riviera House, which had come out in hardback last year, had just come out in paperback there, and it was the number one best-selling book in Norway. That's while I'm signing. So exciting. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You, and it just felt real. You know, someone, Of course, that sounds so silly because I've been published over there for a couple of years, but when you don't see it, it doesn't feel real. Yeah. Whereas now I've been into a Norwegian bookstore, I've seen yeah. it, not just on shelf, but in the number one best seller position. So that was really
1: exciting. But there were a few snaps taken. Oh, just a few, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and even my kids say, oh, wow, mommy, you're so cool. Why
1: not really? (laughs) Hang on to that because they're not going to think that forever. I know, (laughs) forever. I don't know. (laughs) Would would you say that those countries like the Scandinavian country and you mentioned Sweden and, of course, your books come out in the US as well in the UK, where would you say overseas your books are the most popular, like apart from Australia?
0: That's a really good question. So definitely the US but also Scandinavia, particularly Denmark, Sweden, and Norway are like my kind of golden triangle of countries. I don't know why. Yeah. They have this thing over there called feel-good literature, and my books get published into that kind of slot. And in Norway in particular, there's only one native Norwegian writer writing in that genre. So the rest of it is translated fiction. So... We, there's this kind of big gap in the market that translated fiction feels and so lucinda riley's really popular there and my books are likened to hers there and uh, taking up that space when she doesn't have a book at all obviously she's now unfortunately mm-hmm. passed away but so that's i don't know, maybe why they've been popular there but also czech do really well there at romania so all these kind of off the beaten track sort of countries but then italy's really big for us too so it's a bit sporadic. But definitely, Scandinavia is my heartland
1: for international publication and the US. Great. So good that you got to go over there and check it all out too. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so before we get on to talking about the tension and the conflict in Alex St-Pierre, could you, just for those people that may not have read it yet, could you just give us a quick rundown on what the book's actually about? Of course. So The Free nice of Alex St-Pierre mm-hmm. is about Alex, who
0: Starts off as an orphan, then she becomes a schoolgirl, then a fashion editor, and then a spy. before she finally lands a job as the publicity director for the not yet launched House of Christian Dior in Paris in 1946. And it's her job to try to convince the press to come to the first showing from this new and unheard of designer. And at the same time, she realizes that someone is trying to find out what she did during the war, which is something she's been she's sworn never to talk about, and in fact isn't allowed to speak about. So she ends up with two jobs, trying to convince the press to come to Dior's first show, and trying to escape or find out more about this person who is intent on tracking her down.
1: Uh, very good summary. <laughs> it's a big story, so yes. A few times. Oh, there is, as with all your novels, there is a dual timeline in this story, but it's a little bit different this time in that we don't have a modern contemporary storyline and the historical one. There's historical timelines just a few years apart, one being post-war, the main storyline, and then the kind of backstory but, that you go into fairly in-depth is the second one. What drove that decision for you in terms of the writing and rather than having the contemporary timeline and perhaps like a different character in that second timeline? I think the first thing that drove it was that I was fatigued by writing those
0: dual historical contemporary narratives. Yes. I felt like I'd done it for, what was it, four books? Paris French Paris Secret and Riviera House. And, and I felt like I couldn't then just write another one of those without it maybe starting to feel a bit too much the to same because obviously the thing that a dual narrative hinges around is the fact that your main historical character has got to either be absent in some way and so the contemporary character is trying to track down their story or there, there's some kind sort of love that didn't work out or someone's going to die. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. you start to run out of ways to kill people off or st- Keep lovers separated who really want to be together. I just felt like I was going to have to be manufacturing something rather than emerging organically out of the story. And I didn't want to write a book that I felt like I was applying a plot. And of course course- Exactly. I always want the plot to merge out of the idea. So I, from the outset, I knew it wasn't going to be dual narrative, but in fact, I didn't realise it was going to be a dual historical when I started. I thought it was all going to be post-Second World War and that it was just going to be sort of hints of what had happened during the Second World War. But then I realised to show, sort of one, one of the things I wanted to do was show how life changed so much for women. During the Second World War where they were allowed so much independence and were encouraged to take on any kind of job and really stepped up and gained, could have ambitions. And then suddenly the war ended, the men came home and they were told go back home, and to show that effectively that horrible juxtaposition and to show how women might have felt about that, realised I realized really needed to show what they were doing during the war to make that juxtaposition more powerful and more more emotional for the reader. So that then led into writing this dual narrative that was two historical storylines that, as you say, are only set sort of a few years apart. So it was a combination of fatigue, not wanting to do the same thing all the time, wanting to do something a bit deeper myself and realising that the story needed this to be out of work.
1: And did that affect your writing process at all, Natasha, in terms of, I know you have a pretty, which I might get you to give us a quick rundown in case people haven't heard it before, but you have a fairly set type of process that you go through when you're writing your books. Did it change at all with this one? Not so much in the writing of the
0: book. Before I submitted it to the publisher, the structural editing process was quite challenging and quite different this time, but my own kind of writing process was fairly similar in that I wrote Alex's 46, 1947 storyline first and then I wrote the historical storyline in that and then worked out how they pieced together. Like, as often happens to me with this book, I was about three quarters of the way through and I didn't really know how it was going to end. There's something that happens with Alex's friend Lily that, I didn't know how that was going to play out. And there's kind of Nazi from her past that she's trying to bring to justice and I didn't really know what had happened there. It's not unusual for me. So, again, oh, yeah. it's just that i continuing to write when I'm hoping
1: to unravel that thread. Yeah. I think comes <laughs> <something laughs> up, yeah. yeah. But, 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 but <laughs> you always stop. Yeah. <laughs> I guess then once you're writing that second timeline, the things that you learnt then about the characters, you then have to go back and that. Means you then have to adjust things in the sort of more prominent timeline, don't you? Yeah,
0: it does. It means, again, there's another character called Anthony March who I suddenly realised was going to also be in the historical storyline. And I didn't know that when I started writing the contemporary storyline and oh, not contemporary, the 1946 storyline. And so then you have to then go back into the 1946, 1947 storyline and place enough little suggestions into their early conversation to make it clear that he's also involved in some way. So that then when you cut back to the wartime storyline, you realize who he is. And so the reader can start to pick up on those things. So I always say there's those motifs, which are the same for a, any journal, whether it's present and historical, or whether it's true historical timelines, where you have to have something—an object, a person, a place, a phrase—that appears in one storyline. It then needs to appear in the the second storyline, fairly close thereafter, so readers can see, oh, there are some connections between these storylines. And it's up to me to keep my eye out for those connections, so I can start to piece together how these two timelines fit together. Often, those motifs come—I don't realize that they're there until I finish a draft and I go, oh wow, look how clever I am. There's one right there. <laughs> no. And then sometimes, like later, as you realize, oh, this character was involved in both these storylines, okay,
1: then I have to go back and place
0: them more effectively than I have in this first draft. So,
1: would you say you spend a lot more time in the revision than in the drafting? Oh, my God, yes.
0: This draft is quick and neat for me because, like I say, I'm three quarters of the way through and don't really know what's going to happen. So, I've just got to kind of just keep getting it all out so I can work that out for myself and work out what the story is and work out who these characters are. So, that'll be maybe of 10 weeks, it might take to write a first draft. And then rewriting would take, so I mean, usually break the year up into school terms. That, that one school term to write a first draft, and it's the next three school terms to rewrite. <laughs> rewriting
1: one draft picture, basically yeah yeah we're gonna i just want I would talk a little bit more about the dual timeline and how that impacts the tension when we get onto structure but as i was reading this i was really aware of the tension your books are always very page turning but in this one in particular i really felt that sort of tension permeating the story is infusing that sort of tension and suspense something that you are consciously doing i guess you you by the time you get to the stage where you've written as many novels as you have it, some of that would come naturally. But that is also, I guess, then something that you are really consciously doing at the revision at each edit, aren't you?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. How much of it is innate versus how much do you have to think, go back and think about it and really dig deep, deep into making sure you've applied it in the manuscript? And for this one, it was interesting. I, in fact, this is true of all my historical novels. So. In those first few drafts and, bef- and then the method I send in for structural editing, I always have the same problem, which is in the first sort of six, seven chapters with a historical novel, there's so much you've got to establish. You've got to set up the characters. You've got to set up the scene. You've got to set up the history. You've got to set up the actual events that happened at that time. You've got to layer in uh, the the cultural perception of the, the time, the world views of the people who inhabited that place and that time. So there's a a lot factually that you have to get in there. But you can't spend so much time getting that in there that you dilute the tension. And there's always that battle and it's most profound in the first sort of six or seven chapters because once you've established it, it's established and then you just continue yeah. the story. But you've got to establish it enough that the reader feels totally grounded in this world, in this era, in this worldview, in this culture, but to still have some tension that they want to keep turning pages. And I never quite get that right before I submit it for structural edit, and I know that. But I don't worry too much about that because I know that my editor will ask me the right questions and say, and then I'll go, okay, yes, I don't need to explain all of that. I can do that more succinctly. I could get through that more quickly. I had cut this out. But that's a real juggling act in terms of narrative tension. And it's just on the weekend, I read this really interesting thing. So I've become obsessed by Substack. So Substack is a platform where writers of all news writers, journalists, fiction writers, write pieces, write articles, and send those out as newsletters. And I love it because it's not Instagram, it's not Facebook, it's not advertising driven. We're not contributing money to this kind of monolithic, ethically questionable meta. And George Saunders, um, who wrote right. in *The past so George Saunders is yeah. on Substack. Yeah, he's got an amazing Substack called Story Club. Every writer should go and subscribe right now. So you can get a free version
1: as well as a paid version. Oh, okay. paid can group. I tell you that I have subscribed and I have yet to read them? They're all piling oh, up. Oh my voice.
0: god, it's so good! good. He good. is brilliant, and he has these writing exercises that are just so great. Anyway, he was talking about this exact thing on the weekend. He was saying how because he's also a writing tutor. He works at the university and he takes groups of writing students. And he was saying how one of the common problems he comes up against is that people set their stories at a simmer and they never reach boiling. I'm like, oh, That's so true. And so for me in those first six or seven chapters, often the problem is everything's just simmering. There's no kind of increase of the heat, which is that increase of the tension where you get things bubbling along, which then kind of increases the tension yet still more. I don't know if that makes sense. He wrote it much more um, eloquently than I just described it. So go and look at uh, George Saunders' story club, everybody. But so that's where I needed to focus in the structural edit on getting that tension in. And so there's a couple of things that went in there that I didn't have before. For example, I sort of, I had convinced myself that the inciting incident of the book, which is obviously always so important to getting in out of tension, yeah. right? Alex moving to Paris and taking on the job, which was true in a way, but... This one needed a second inciting incident of just that past coming into the present. And so now she gets a letter with just two Two. words telling her to leave Paris. And she thinks it's from this person from her past. Turns out to be from someone entirely different. But the fact that she thinks it's from this person and the reader's, oh my God, now we're in the story. What happened? Why does this person want her to leave Paris? And oh my God, she's not going to. She's going to stay. What, therefore, is going to happen? Because.
1: So it immediately later. delights that curiosity exactly. and that what's going to happen factor. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny
0: because we often think, oh, tension is something really big. But in fact, it was just one note with two words. That's oh. all it needed. And it just changed the, it set the simmer to boil all of a sudden in the first kind of six chapters. So tension is never, it doesn't always have to be something in catastrophic, explosive, and uh, that takes pages to convey, it can often be something very simple, mm. but something that yeah. you can see sets the story to bubbling. I guess
1: actually, Rachel Johns in a recent interview or chat that I had with her on the podcast, and she said it also in Michelle Berikoff's podcast, said something similar, but it was about stakes. So I think stakes that you know that, and I think she got the quote from Emily Henry or someone that the stakes don't have to be big, but they have to be personal. Exactly. Had to have that really strong meaning for the character. You know? Yeah,
0: that's a very eloquent <laughs> to and succinct way of describing it. That's exactly right. It's got to be personal. Yeah. But,
1: but yep. I love that simmering and then the, boi- the bu- bubbling and boiling yeah. as well. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it can be really tricky to work out that inciting incident, can't it? Like often you think you've got it. And like you say, then it's not, that's not it. Absolutely. And to the part of my own books that I always
0: rewrite the most are those first six chapters because if they're not right, everything that follows on from that isn't right because if you don't have the right inciting incident, then your story falls flat. If there isn't an inciting incident at all, then there's no, you haven't even set the story to a simmer, so you've got nothing. You've just got cold water in a poll <laughs> and that's pretty unappealing. It's a dreadful metaphor that we're going with, but we're just going to go with it. Okay. <laughs> it works. It works. Oh, no, that's right. Exactly. So It's crucial. A lot of people... Ugh, there's a lot of talk about saggy middles, and okay, they're really important too, but I always think that if you can get that first part of the story right, the rest of it really starts to take care of itself. And so if you haven't rewritten your first at least three chapters multiple times and you haven't done them up work, I don't think, unless you're a genius and you don't need to, <laughs> I'm not, but I'm
1: not but then, of course, don't get stuck just writing the first three chapters. <laughs> only black, though. So many pitfalls, of course, is crucial to creating tension and that includes the internal conflict for the character. So how central was creating that internal conflict for Alex's character and how did you develop that as the story evolved?
0: Yeah, this book was really interesting for me in relation to that because in many ways it was much harder than my previous books' wish. So in my previous books I had a young heroine who wasn't battle-scarred in the way that Alex is and she's facing the patriarchy. So you've got that great conflict, easy conflict there from the outset. Whereas with this one, so much of what's driving Alex is actually her internal conflict. She doesn't fit, she's never fitted in any part of her life. She was an orphan. She lived with this family and that took her on out of this out of sense of obligation. Then she worked in Switzerland in this very male environment during the war. And then she's come to Paris and she's working in this very glamorous high-end couture house where the customers are all rich and a lot of her friends are very well off. And she isn't. She's got to afford to buy a dress The gods so get the order, donate one to her out of charity. So she's got that sort of internal conflict of not fitting in. She's got the internal conflict of what happened during the war, this kind of quest that she's on for justice that she doesn't have to take on but she decides to take on. And she's also got knowledge that she could so easily let all of these terrible things that have happened to her kind of sweep her away into that very alcoholic, drug-fueled life that so many people in Paris lived in that time. Carmel Snow was a character in the book, the Harper's Bazaar fashion editor. She was an iconic woman, but she was an alcoholic, dreadful alcoholic. Yeah. And that was the way of things so often in those days. So there's, there was so much of that, which is actually hard to get onto the page because you can't just write or you can't just blur all that out because it's boring. You can't have the characters sitting in a room cogitating on all these things that are going on inside with them because that's, there's no tension there whatsoever. And that's where the reader just goes, oh, no, I'm really bored. I'm going to put that book down. You've got to somehow go, okay, how can I show all these things on the page? How can I? show all of these different demons that she's battling and all these different conflicts and get them ready to be engaged with those things. And beyond that, the stakes are rising, the tension is mounting, and I still want to keep writing on. So it was much more of a challenging book for me to write because the character was that kind of more battle-scarred, complex character, I feel, than what I'd perhaps written in the past, which mm. was great for me as a writer.
1: Yeah, yeah. So do you think the trick to that is really just getting into the character's skin and as I know that you're what they call a discovery writer so you're learning yeah. the story as they go along but do you think that is part of it is just really becoming absorbed with that character and their life?
0: Yeah I think it is and I think it's also looking at okay how can I have this person this person's internal complex revealed in a way that they're not thinking I'm gonna I say this to my running students you're going to write A whole scene without any thought. So the cameras are not allowed to think anything in that scene because as soon as you're thinking, you're telling. So you've got to somehow, through dialogue or through their actions, show the reader what is going on in part this person. So who can you put with them to have a conversation with as some of those things start to come out? What kind of people would they have these sorts of conversations with? What kind of people can they encounter who maybe... Have some of these same conflicts and they can see it in the other person and in the way that they're picking up on these things that maybe there's some kind of reason for that. So I think that's always a really good thing to practice as a writer to cut yourself off from. You have basically action, dialogue, thought, and description available to you as your four kind of key tools. Usually, thought and description are the most telling and usually action, dialogue are the most showing. That's, you can do either with each of those but as a general rule so if you cut yourself off from the telling techniques when you know that you're diving into internal conflict and you can only do action and dialogue then it's a much more sting way and a much more tense way of getting that onto the page than that whole kind of internal monologue which let's face it is like someone saying to you I want to hear what I dreamed last night and you're yes. like no that's really
1: worrying." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you say, you definitely don't want pages and pages of what their dream or what they're yeah in. yeah for yeah. sure. No, that's really great advice, Natasha. So going on to that's the kind of internal tension. The external tension, of course, external conflict is also an essential element of the plot. Of course, which actually creates the plot. So you've got when you're setting a book in wartime and post-war, you've got luckily that framework that you can build on. So how do you go about then connecting your individual stories, characters, and hanging them on that framework in order to get the plot happening? Yeah. And that's a really important thing. And that's probably where what you said that Rachel John
0: said comes in is making it personal because if you just rely on external events and external conflicts, then you end up with the plot that feels, you know how readers often will write in a review. I just didn't feel connected to the character. And that's often what happens is because it's all about the external events and your character isn't and doesn't have any agency in those yep. And you've got to think, okay, how can I still have all of these dramatic World War II events going on that I really want to explore but make sure my character has their own personal stake in those events and has some sort of agency in the fact that all of these events are world global conflicts happening around them, but where is their agency in this? And for example, there's one point where Alex decides, so she's working in Switzerland for the OSS, which is an American spying organisation. She's helping the partisans in Italy's north to fight against the Nazis. And she decides to cross the border from Switzerland to Italy, to go into Italy's to see what it's like for the partisan, now she doesn't have to do that. She's not, in fact, she's not really supposed to do that. Uh, it's illegal, mm. but she decides to do it anyway because that gives her agency. She can. She's now part of that external conflict that is this big global thing, and she's able to meet the people who are on the ground in that conflict. And she forms her own personal relationships with those people, and therefore she has more at stake because she, she needs is- to keep those people alive because. They're her friends. She's committed to them and she's on the ground there. So she, the fact of her deciding to go and then traveling through makes those events personal. It increases the tension. It raises the stakes. It does all those things that we're looking for when we're writing these sorts of stories. So that's what you've always got to ask yourself is, okay, how can I make sure that amidst the tumults that's happening externally, what can my character do? At, take an active decision to do that puts them in the centre of things and causes Mm -hmm. them to
1: have some kind of personal personal stake in all of these bigger events. Yeah, and of course, as in that situation, putting them into a dangerous situation or having them do something that they shouldn't be doing, that they're not allowed to do, it, it increases that even more, doesn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Anytime your character can do something, I'm supposed to, to let them do it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no wild! Just moving on to the kind of romantic element of the plot, and this is where you men- mentioned Anthony March, who is a fabulous character. I loved Anthony. It really had, this story really had a kind of 1940s movie vibe. Yes. I like that. It, was it does, really good, doesn't good, it? Actually. Yeah, I was really picturing it with all those sort of smoky bars and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so part of the the hist- part of the tension between them of course comes from the history between the two of them and then also this attraction that they have for each other which is simmering beneath the surface to use the simmering metaphor again. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about creating that sort of romantic and sexual tension and weaving that into the plot?
0: Yes, when this what I was really interested in doing was thinking okay well, I wanted to get two people who are completely different. So you've got Alex, who is completely independent, very ambitious, very unlike every other woman almost of her time because of the way women were brought up at that time, and she hadn't been brought up like that. So she has this fiercely independent, ambitious street that is unusual. And then you've got Anthony March, who is the epitome of the conservative traditional male who's been brought up in a privileged environment, who thinks women are – uselessly ornamental and he will just get married to one of them and cheat on them and live this life where the, the world is literally his oyster and the world has been established just for him. And so I thought, okay, well, what happens if I put these two people in a room together? Let's have some fun with that. And can two people who are stopped their origins and therefore their entire world view is so different, can they ever find some common ground because of this kind of shared history that they have? And so that was where the kind of a lot of that tension came from. Again, any time you can just add one more thing on to make it the extreme, that's basically all these two characters, that's where your tension comes from. If they'd been just a little bit more similar, then they wouldn't have had as many kind of battles as they have. And therefore, some of those lines they have, that's about banter, would never have happened. So they were a bit of a running gift, their interactions, but it came about because of that deliberate choice of making them as different as possible, but wanting to see where they could find their commonality within that difference. But I've had readers say to me that of all of my books, this one was the one where if they didn't finally kiss, they were going to throw the book at the wall. <laughs> okay, so maybe I did stretch that up for as long as I possibly could, but that's also part of it as well, because. You've got to you've got to judge that. You've got to go. When have I gone too far? And the reader is like, "Oh my God, I'm I'm tired of waiting. I don't want to wait anymore. I am going to throw the book at the wall." Or it was just enough that you got there at the right moment, and that's just gut. Yeah. There's no marker that can tell you've hit that. You just have to, from reading a lot, be
1: able to develop that own sense of judgment, yeah. and from getting reader feedback, perhaps from other yeah. books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So we, we talked a little bit about the dual timeline and the whole structural thing. So once you've, you've got the draft and you are sitting down to try and work out what you've got your two timelines, how are you then looking at structuring it to really set that suspense and the tension as much as you can? So I'm guessing the question is once you've got your draft complete, How do you then go back over in those first few revisions before you send it to your editor in order to see how you can get it to where you want it to be?
0: Yeah, and that's always a challenge in terms of where do I end this part and therefore where do I start the next part of the story? Like where do I break away from this timeline, start the next timeline? And quite a lot of books that do the dual narrative swap each chapter so you go back and forth from each chapter. I sometimes find that doesn't allow you to get in enough with one character and so it's it can take you longer to pull forward to that connection that you need to have so most of my books give you a few chapters in each timeline before you then swap so you can develop that really close connection to the character but with this one for example so Dior's first showing is one of the kind of key moments of tension in the book that we've been building up to this first show What will it be like? And originally that was in part one of the book and now it's part three of the book. I moved it later because I realised I was missing out a whole attention that I could have made more of if I had it happen later. It didn't need to happen so early. So again, that was a conscious decision about to keep the, to keep ratcheting up the the boiling point. And that's the kind of, that's the big moment. So you don't want to have that come too early because then you don't have as much to follow on with. So it's looking at the book in that way and making those decisions. And also you, when you're writing a narrative where you've got people in one storyline thinking about something that happened in a past storyline, you need to make sure that past storyline isn't then just repeating what they're thinking of in the present storyline. So with this one, there's a key scene that happens in the World War II storyline where Alex has been summoned to a hotel room to meet somebody. And initially, I had really let the reader know pretty much what had happened in that room that night in the post war storyline. Yeah. And therefore, I again diluted the tension. I needed to make sure that they didn't talk, think, or Discuss that moment until it had happened in the World War II storyline. So we could always be wondering, okay, we know something happened, but what? But what? And so I needed to make sure that I delayed that for as long as possible. So it's that, that friction between delaying for long enough that you get the tension, but not delaying for too long that you frustrate the reader. And again, that is Guardian instinct. Oh, it
1: comes from reading. Yeah. And that's a great word, the friction, because that's yeah. good, you're going for, is and it? All yeah. the way through. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and are you at that point? Are you conscious of the whole turning point thing in the three act structure and all that sort of thing? Do you usually follow that, or how does that work for you? Like
0: really, all right, that's one thing I do more on a gut feel. So I never sit down and go, "Okay, that's my midpoint and that's my turning point," which probably is about I don't know. No. I feel like that's more. Like I know if it's there or not. Yeah. Some of the things I do think more about though are things like red herring and they've been important in most of my books. So like in this one, there's a character called Bobby who we start to think is uh, Alex's ex-fiance and we start to think he was involved in some way in what happened in the war. But he's not. he is a red herring, absolutely. And you've got to have that because yeah. otherwise it's too obvious the twist or the the resolution to the conflict or whatever word you want to use about that you need to have someone or something or some event in there that starts to lead people down one path only to find out that it is at that path. So I'll plan that more and be more conscious of placing that carefully in the story. And Lily is something of a twister, so I needed to be conscious about how I placed her in the story as well. So I'm more conscious of that than I'm about turning points.
1: Yeah, and it's the placement of those scenes in relation to yeah. each other and, and how the two timelines work together. Yeah, Yeah. 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 So just... Getting down to the nitty-gritty, within a scene, when you're working on one particular scene and you're revising it, what sort of things are you looking at in terms of trying to increase that conflict and tension within one scene on the page? There's a couple of things. And again, it's the friction.
0: So... For example, there's a scene in the book where Alex and Anthony go to this nightclub called Taboo in Paris and basically the purpose of that scene is for him to tell her what happened on this particular night when this colossal tragedy happened in April 1945, but they don't just sit down and he just spills his guts straight away because there's no tension in it. exactly. So you've got to have, that's where description can come in really. Uh, there's a really powerful tool because you've got to set up this nightclub. It's this Lodite or Stella night because in Paris. So I, I'm obviously creating a scene around that, the way it looks, the way it sounds, the way it feels, what's going on in the room, all the activity and the action and the hubbub going on around these two people having this very intense private, intimate conversation that's very personal, peculiar space that in itself has a lot of friction because of what they're talking about. So that's when you want to keep cutting in and out of what's going on between the two people to what's happening in the larger room, to what's happening with the two people, to what's happening in the larger room. So you're able to prolong the moment of the big reveal yeah. of the whole purpose of this scene where he tells her what happens. And even within that, people don't just in a conversation, the whole thing about what are their procrastination devices when something gets too, too difficult to speak about. Like Anthony is a smoker because it's the 1940s yeah. and that's what people did back then. So he's a... smoke <laughs> <back> a lot.
1: <laughs> well, I did
0: notice that. I know, there's a lot of smoking. I'm terrible. It's terrible. Birth. It's a <laughs> Uh, look, so that's something that he'll do. He'll fiddle with the cigarette packet or he'll light a cigarette or they run out because they literally like way too many cigarettes on this particular night. They need to get a drink or one of the – do you know what I mean? There's, so mm. what do your characters personally do to help prolong the scene as well? So it's how does the scene itself, the setting, help you prolong? How do the characters – prolong the reveal how can you keep that friction going between tell pull back tell pull back tell pull back until finally you tell and you move on to the next scene
1: yes it's that real zooming in and zooming out with the carry camera all the time isn't it yeah that's right exactly a lot of these questions are silly because you just do it because you've been doing it for so long so we're really pulling the process apart but of course works really well to underscore that tension too because there's so much in what a character says but there's so much in what they don't say so are you Absolutely. always consciously looking at that as well as you're working through your revision
0: yeah always and that's one of the hardest things because body language is a big ha- big part of that and it's like you not not repeating the same bits of body language over and over again becomes quite challenging but I've got this great book I'm just gonna zoom yeah yeah grab it off my shelf exactly. because I can't remember what it's called okay I here, here we go yeah. Okay, so it's called The Describer's Dictionary and David Grahams and Ellen Levine are the authors and I think it was Taylor Jenkins read that recommended this one time and I went out and bought it. And so it goes through just lots of different words for different things. So there's a whole section on gestures and facial expressions. it's wow, great. Like that. Exactly. And so if you're stuck for, you don't want them to say something but you want to show that they're... Discomforted, or they're sad, or they're angry without the same. He gritted his teeth yeah. on. I know. Really, it you can
1: get so hard. Oh, you just don't want to be
0: Exactly. This is just a really good little thought starter. And even if you don't use the exact the exact word, the exact phrase so that they've got right here, it just can make you think outside the box. Yeah, so there's a whole section here on facial expressions and head movements, medical terms for bones and other anatomical parts. So you can okay. describe a body part in a different way. Eyes, eye colour, eyebrows, nose and ears, hands and fingers, legs and knees and feet, gait, voice, physical state
1: and symptoms. It's just really good. So describe a dictionary. My whole That's tip. amazing. I'm going to yeah. end- Ordering a copy of that when we' finish chatting. And I'll, um, I'll put that in the show notes for everyone. Too. Yeah, by the time you get to the end of that revision process, are you still I know that one of your the, the things you used to do was you used to chart out what does the character know at different points, what does the reader know? Are you still working on that?
0: Yes, I process. think that's really critical. and that's how you basically get your structure working, making sure that there were times in this edit that I realised that the reader knew too much. I told them too much too early and I need to pull back on some of those things and delay those things. So ask yourself those questions. If you just broadly look at a book in three acts, act one, act two, three, what do they know at the end of act one and what do they still need to know? What do they know at the end of act two and what do they still not know? And again, by the end of act three, obviously you want them to pretty much know everything, but how do you then just drip that through? That's so crucial to my writing process. And I think that those set. Though Just those two questions alone, if you just want something really simple, it's like, okay, how much is three know at this point and how much is there still left for them to find out? Yeah, And okay, oh, oh shit, there's only one more thing that I to find out and it's only act one. I'd probably yeah. need to change that or up a bit. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I love that. I always remember you doing that chart. And yeah. It's such a, it's such a great way of looking at it. Yeah. So we've covered so much ground. It's been really good, but. One question I have, and this is a problem I currently have at the moment, so I'm picking your brain on this one, not so much in terms of the tension, but when you're completely in the zone with your story, you're you either in the draft or you're full-on in the revision and you're in it day in, day out, are you then, are you living with that 24-7 or are you able to cut yourself off like when you switch off for the night and you're cooking dinner or eating dinner or going to bed or whatever? Have you got the knack of being able to switch your brain off? Because my brain is just, I'm writing this novella at the moment and I'm going to bed and I know it's good to have things in your head, but I'm finding it so hard to switch off now that I'm back into regular writing.
0: Yeah, no, I'm the same. And that is more intense for me at certain pages. Like in structural editing, I basically try now and I try and go away for a week so that I can literally live in the book for a week and I don't have to cook food for anyone. I don't have to eat at certain set times for children's stomachs. I don't have to talk. I don't speak. What <laughs> being in my room and I have to get dressed. Exactly. And it's so helpful because honestly, I think some of my best writing comes from those weeks where I am just living in the book. So that sense of it being all-consuming is hugely powerful, but you're right. It can be very intrusive on day-to-day living. And I do tend to spend too much time in my head. And I just think that's what writing is like. So for me, that's where things like, Running is really good for me. Like I do a lot of my thinking when I'm out running or walking or whatever. In the shower, washing dishes, I like using those mundane tasks to just let my mind wander. So that hopefully, then when the kids are something like I don't know how to do, what was it that I had to help with the other day? Oh my god, circle geometry, and I'm like, oh no that I can go, okay, let's get out of the nine forties and get into circular geometry. So yes, it's a it's really tricky. I, and I don't think I have the perfect solution to that. And some nights I will be lying in bed going, Okay, I just need to stop thinking about this. Mm-hmm. But it's really challenging. Yeah. So I do try and give myself permission to have certain times throughout the year where I am just immersed in it and I don't have to switch out so that then I can let myself be less
1: distracted by it at other times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're on school holidays now, so I know that's always a nice break for you. Yes, so, so enjoy that
0: and we will
1: We we are getting another book next year, though, aren't we? We are, and in fact, okay,
0: so we've only just finalised the title for that book, and I haven't even announced on social media. So here you go, Pat. So it's going to be called The Disappearance of Astrid Ricard, and. So this one is set largely in the 1970s. It's got three timelines, contemporary, 1970s, and 1917 to 1947. Oh, I, I know. So it was big, massive, colossal books. So There was a fashion battle at the Palace of Versailles in France in 1973. Five French couturiers took on five American fashion designers in this battle to decide who was the world's supreme kind of fashion power. Everyone thought the French would win, but the Americans took out the night. And so that is the key event around which my story hangs. And that night at the Battle of Versailles, a fashion legend disappears, leaving behind just a silk dress and the question, what happened to Astrid Ricard? And so you'll have to read the book oh, to find wow. Wow. Well,
1: <laughs> there's some tension right there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds great, Natasha. And that'll be October? October, yeah. October 2023. 2023. I know. Hopefully I will see you before then. Yes, definitely. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and thank you so much for having me again, Pam. It's always lovely to chat to you. Uh, Thanks, Natasha.
1: Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w 4 The Facebook page Writes for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.